Right placement, right time. Europe's frothy fundraising market is making the importance of a placement agent ever more apparent. Unquote speaks with a specialist in the field, Sunaina Sinha of Raymond James Seville, to get her insight into LP appetite, secondaries investments, and fundraising during a pandemic in this episode of the Unquote Private Equity Podcast. Hello, listener, and welcome to this latest episode of the Unquote Private Equity Podcast. I am Greg Gilles, the editor of Unquote, as ever delighted to be your host today. We're back for another In Conversation With episode, our regular series where we bring you more in-depth interviews with leading market participants. A few weeks ago, we had the pleasure of welcoming Reed co-founder and partner Adam Turtle on the podcast to discuss everything placement and secondaries related, from the evolution of the job itself to the outlook for P fundraising in 2022. We are very much continuing in that vein with today's guests, and this is a conversation I'm really looking forward to. My guest founded a placement agent and secondaries advisory firm, Sebil Capital, in 2011, and she went on to work on countless fundraises and secondaries transactions across the globe in the following decade. She is also an angel investor, has served and is currently serving as a director on a number of boards. She has been a guest lecturer at Stanford, and you can hear her regularly on CNBC. And last but not least, she was a judge in this year's Unquote British Private Equity Awards and is also a certified sommelier from the Court of Masters Sommelier. I'm actually leaving out a fair few distinctions here as I'm starting to feel very underaccomplished. So without further ado, let me welcome our guest, Sunaina Sina, the Global Head of Private Capital Advisory at Raymond James. Sunaina, thanks so much for stopping by to talk to us today. How are you? Good. Thank you so much, Greg, for having me today. Looking forward to the discussion. So one of the bits that I left out in that intro is the fact that just a few weeks ago, Sebil Capital was acquired by Raymond James. Uh, this is obviously very exciting news, uh, 10 years after starting the firm from scratch. Can you perhaps start by telling us a bit more about that? How, how did it all come together? Yes, absolutely. It is absolutely very exciting as an entrepreneur to start a business, to grow a business and to have it acquired by a Fortune 500 strategic um, it is a great end to that chapter and the beginning of a very exciting one for us within the Raymond James platform. It all came about with Raymond James running a search globally for a firm they could acquire that bought them placements and secondaries capabilities. They looked at where the market was evolving. They have a terrific M&A business, uh, one of the largest private wealth management businesses in the world. And this was a key strategic part of the arsenal that they were missing, uh, a group that could raise capital for many of the private equity sponsors to whom they are a leading investment banking partner, a group that could help on the GP-led continuation uh, vehicle market, which was becoming a mainstay of the market, which has become a mainstay of, of the transaction market, where sponsors are looking to exit companies through that channel instead of through a straight M&A channel, and a group that could work with their private bank, both on fundraising and secondary solutions. And when they did their search, they identified um, Sibyl Capital as one of the leading um, providers of that service to general partners around the world. And they approached me directly earlier in the year saying, we'd like to start a conversation with you. Now, I'll be very honest, Greg, i had had a number of these approaches that I'd rebuffed pretty quickly. But something about this one intrigued me. They, uh, the, the gentleman uh, by the name of Jim Bunn, who runs the bank, came highly referenced through some other clients uh, of my business. And I started the discussion and liked what I heard. And, and the rest, as they say, is history. That's, that's great. And it's, uh, it's interesting, a, a number of things that you mentioned there, it sort of ties up with the general 
evolution of the market in a way from the import obviously everyone realizing the importance of private markets and private capital and uh, and obviously that asset class just growing massively uh, but also the, the sort of the rise of secondaries and how it ties in to, to m a and that's that these, these are points that I'm, I'm sure we'll come back to uh, later but um if you look at the evolution of the the placement agent function and and scope uh, and the evolution of the industry in general i guess um since you founded sibyl just 10 years ago uh, what, what stands out for you You know, there's really three trends that stand out to me as the key turning points of the in, of the growth of the private capital markets industry in general. The first is the fact that hedge funds and liquid capital inflows started becoming outflows in the early part of the last decade, where investors realized that if you were going to pay two and twenty management fee and carry. Then the place where real alpha was being generated was in private equity, and that became a huge boon for the asset class in terms of inflows, not just into the largest GPs, but mid-market, lower mid-market, thematic sector-focused funds became the real differentiator in the industry. And that trend started about a decade ago and continues on today. So that is a meaningful um, uh, event that sort of started about a decade ago after the financial crisis and has continued at pace now. The second, of course, is the evolution of the secondaries market, specifically the GP-led market, where your placement agent is no longer just a placement agent. Your placement agent is expected to give solutions in both capital formation and liquidity solutions, both at the GP level, but also the fund level, and then even at the asset level. And we were very early into secondaries. We established ourselves in secondaries in 2012, where very few placement agents had that capability. And we were very clear about growing both our placements and our secondaries advisory capabilities equally over the years. So that even today, even at the point of acquisition and today, we are equal footing placement agent and secondaries advisor because we do believe that the two solutions sit hand in glove when you're advising a general partner about fund solutions, you've got to be able to do both. And that's what makes you a trusted advisor to a general partner, where you can do an exit solution for them using the secondaries market, as well as a capital formation solution to them through the placements group. So that's number two. The third one that really was um, really quite innovative was the advent of single asset continuation vehicles being an alternative exit path to M&A. And the fact that GPs didn't have to do an M&A transaction um, in order to exit a business, they could do it via the single asset world. That was a really turning point a couple of years ago. The single asset world is only three years old onto itself. And those three were really key drivers of the momentum behind our business and the adoption of our business into investment banks. And, and yeah, and um, that I guess that allows you as a firm as well to have almost that nose to tail kind of touch points with the GPs that you partner with, right? It's not just, you know, that's great. We've just completed the fundraise. See you on the next fund in, in seven years' time, or whatever the case may be. You, you have these that continuing relationship throughout the cycle almost, right? That's right. We have many GP relationships for whom we have done um, fundraises, secondary solutions. There's a couple of GPs where we're working on the second and third secondary solution for their funds, um, be it through the continuation vehicle world, whether it be it through a preferred equity or a single asset, um, uh, or even just uh, replacing LPs through a straight uh, partial tender process. 
and then coming back for the next fundraise. And now a number of GPs are looking at, at uh, platform solutions where they are looking to add strategies. So if you're a buyout fund, you're perhaps looking at a, a, a smaller mid-cap fund or you're looking at a growth strategy all of which we now do under one house for the same GP. That's what makes us really sticky and additive as that strategic advisor to the GP through its life cycle, where we no longer have to wait three to four years for the GP to raise its next fund. We are constantly providing solutions through the life cycle. And by the way, one of the big trends of the last couple of years that I also think is here to stay is the fact that the co-investments and direct deal investing for GPs, especially in the GPs in the mid-market is very much here to stay, where they're, of course, they're offering co-investments to their existing limited partners, but equally, they're looking to do a few strategic deals that may require syndication of that deal to other LPs as a way to get to know those LPs as well. Yeah, and uh, and there's a lot here to to unpack in terms of your your outlook on the market, uh, and I think we'll just start by the you know the, the obvious part, which is the fundraising uh, and, and let's say primary fundraising. Uh, if we look at, at the current market, obviously it's it's been uh, it's been a bit of a topsy turvy one in in the past year and a half. Uh, Obviously, a lot of uncertainty for, for three months or so. Um, but I think there were a lot of doom and gloom in the first place. And that was quite quickly uh, asked and, and, and put to bed because we saw a lot, a lot of players having a lot of success, even fully remotely. Uh, that said, there are still challenges for, for a lot. But uh, overall, did you anticipate at the start of the pandemic that we would see such a, a strong 12 month uh, after that in terms of the overall amount of capital that, that still managed to find its way to private equity? I think, Greg, if anyone tells you that they had the crystal ball at the start of the pandemic, that person is definitely lying to you. I, none of us expected it to be this big of a recovery for our industry and asset class. Um, of course, hindsight is 2020, and now it all makes sense as to why it happened. But the fact that it happened was a surprise to us all. When the pandemic started, all deals went on hold. We still got fundraisers done. Fundraisers that had been baked were still happening, especially in quality GPs. So that part of the business was humming. But all secondary transactions went on hold in March 2020, pending an outcome. And when the public markets came back um, about a quarter later, that's when the rest of our industry came back as well. Secondaries, advisory, co-invest transactions, or uh, and the rest of our, uh, the fundraisings that perhaps had not come to market, waiting to see how um, the environment might improve. So I think that it, that has been a pleasant surprise for everyone. When you look back and see what was driving that flow, it is essentially this liquidity paradigm that, of course, has started with the um, printing of money by central banks around the world that has first come into play with institutional investors. And institutional investors saying, okay, I've got to put this money to work somewhere. And one of the big beneficiaries of that flow has been private capital uh, markets because of what's been happening in the last decade with valuations in some of the public equities, bond markets, et cetera. Private equity has been an obvious place to invest. So we've seen two things happening at the institutional limited partner level. Number one, they have more dollars to put to work because of the liquidity paradigm we discussed, because of record M&A activity over the last few years in their portfolios. They've had cash and distributions coming back that they have to put out to work. But number two, and this is also important, is that the percentage allocation to private equity has increased over the years. What used to be eight or 9% has almost across the board turned up to be the low double digit allocation, sometimes more into private equity. So that all of that has spurred addition of new managers to portfolios, concentration, i.e. higher checks going into the same managers, 
as well as an interest and appetite in other types of investments in the private markets, whether it's growth investing, SPAC investing, uh, and so on and so forth. So that has all spurred valuations, but also demand for private market strategies. Yeah, and within that, though, and I, I, I don't know if that's your take on it, and perhaps it's, it's a bit overplayed by that point, that, that theme, but uh, one of the main themes for us has, has been bifurcation. And, and just looking at, even in terms of overall statistic, you can you can definitely tell um, that capital is come flowing in, has, has increased, but the overall number of funds, let's say, that, that have closed uh, or even are being launched is, is sort of dwindling a little bit. It, it's not new. It's been happening for, you know, two, three years years now at least, uh, but it seems to have been exacerbated by, by the COVID challenges. Uh, do you think this is set to continue? In other words, will we see the, so the, the, the bigger players or the bigger brands even? It's not, not just the one fund, the, the platform thing comes comes into effect there. Do, do you expect them to start kind of attracting ever more capital and, and, and perhaps smaller players struggling a little bit? Bifurcation has been real. There's just no doubt about it. But I think that it has become a bit of a, a, a throwaway statement to make. There is a lot more to unpack there. Uh, you know, we have gotten a number of emerging managers and smaller managers raised over the last couple of years. It comes down to how do you create a narrative, a fund narrative that resonates with limited partners? Generally, the theme is, is there. Right, there's a flight to quality, a flight to safety with more, more money going towards the larger managers or mid-cap managers or more established managers. For sure, we can have that, have that blanket statement stay. But you've got to go one level deeper and say, okay, if you are a smaller manager, how do you differentiate yourself? And I think that there's really a couple of ways that we've seen managers do it well. The first is with thematic strategies, sector-driven strategies really standing out especially after the pandemic, tech, healthcare, tech services, um, food and ag. These are the types of strategies that have really resonated with investors saying, I've got to add some specialists in this space in my portfolio. We're even working with a defense and cybersecurity tech fund right now that's seeing strong demand amongst institutional limited partners for that reason. I want people who go deep in a strategy, they know how to add value, they know how to network in that space, and build a portfolio, manage a portfolio, and then exit a portfolio. So that has been one strategy that GPs have used. The other one is that they build scale quickly. And that's been possible because of the private capital flows we discussed a couple of minutes ago, that they have been able to get themselves to a scale where they are no longer considered small um, and they're no longer considered niche. And then finally, and this is really important, is of course DPI. DPI being distributions to paid in capital, being the key exit metric, realization metric for GPs and LPs. LPs have become almost hyper-focused on it over the last couple of years because it's been so important for them to know that not only can this GP buy well, but they can sell well too. And with the advent of single asset continuation vehicle markets in secondaries, there's very few excuses really to why you didn't sell a business. Oh, you thought you were leaving too much value on the table? Well, then put it in a new SPV and continue to manage it, but give the option for liquidity back to your investors. And that DPI advent of the story is, is going to continue to compound, is going to continue to become incredibly important because investors now say, well, this we don't feel sorry for you anymore. You have very few excuses. You could have pursued secondary market solutions to give us what we need back to be able to come back and support you. 
Yeah, absolutely makes sense. Plus, coupled with the fact that even the MA market in general is, is rebounded, you, you, you see a number of, uh, of exits and, and buyouts, obviously, but exits, the, the private equity has been very, very good over the past year or so. As soon as the window reopened, everyone sort of came in and, and positioned their portfolios in a way that, you know, they could highlight the, the tech plays, they could highlight the sectors that, that really worked well in, in the pandemic context. Um, so I think, yeah, you put the two together. As you said, there's really no excuse for kind of portfolios that are sort of lingering on with, without any solution for, for LPs there. That totally makes sense. Um, and just going back to the theme of, of platforms that, that you mentioned earlier, which has obviously been, again, a, a very strong driver there. We've all seen the examples of, uh, of firms going up, uh, firms going even down, uh, obviously larger players now raising mid-market vehicles, uh, thematic vehicles, going into different strategies. Uh, one thing, and I'm, I'm, uh, just to preface, I'm not on one side of the fence or the other. We, we need to, uh, we as in unquote, need to, to look at the stats and then do some research, I think, just to see how this all plays out into the sort of the natural ebb and flow of fundraising cycles. What we'd be interested in finding out is do people in the market think that we are due perhaps a quieter couple of vintages pretty soon? It's been, you know, a bit of an uptrend for, for quite some time now. As the large guys have sort of all topped up their coffers on their latest big vehicles, and it's just a bit of a natural ebb in the market, or uh, with the proliferation of, of said platform extensions, will the industry always find a way to, to tap LP capital throughout the cycle? How, how, how do you fall on this? Do you think uh, P is now has, has mastered the art of sort of just raising capital through the cycle? I am very much on the on the side of the platform extensions, proliferation of strategies, ability to do so much more with your limited partners is going to drive um, and continue to provide a strong momentum and tailwind into the market in the next couple of years. So what used to be a very much, a, hey, I'm going to raise a fund. I'm going to go quiet on you. Maybe I'll do a few updates and I'll see you at my annual meeting. Um, and I'll come back to you in four years time when I've invested that fund has turned into for that same general partner turned into a series of events and engagements with limited partners. They'll do that via co-investment and direct investments. They'll do that via platform extensions into private credit, into low end of the market, upper end of the market, adjacencies, growth capital, if they're doing buyout, buyout, if they're doing growth capital and so on. It's turned into you know, a series of uh, single asset or, or multi-asset multi continuation vehicle transactions that often come in between fundraisers. It also can turn into NAV financings or a GP stakes transaction because they're looking for working capital to expand the general partnership into a true platform player. There is so much more activity alongside just a natural fundraise for these GPs, whether you're a large GP or a mid-market GP, it kind of doesn't matter. I have my $300 million buyout fund saying I want to do a growth fund. And I, by the way, I want to do an end-of-life continuation vehicle because of my 2011 or 2012 vintage fund. Um, you've got those same GPs saying, actually, here's a larger transaction that I'd like to syndicate in the co-invest market. Um, you've got that happening at all size spectrums of the industry. The large cap guys are doing more and more strategies. They're putting an impact fund together. They're putting a tech or digital fund together. We are seeing this incredible supply 
proliferation and the fund managers part as they are seeing the ability to do more as private capital markets inflows have increased. So the, the, the demand has increased through institutional capital flows as we discussed because of the macro events that have underpinned our industry over the last few years. And now what you're seeing is that the supply side, the GP side has stepped up to meet that demand and take that demand on. We, you know, we haven't even touched on the fact that private capital wealth advisors have become a real mainstay of the industry with the regulation change in the US and with tech platforms coming up here in Europe um, to meet that demand. That's all part of the same demand narrative that I've just mentioned. And the industry is stepping up to take those inflows on in a variety of different ways. And uh, on on the flip side, because obviously that that would uh, further fuel sort of the the the, the fundraising uh, tally for for the next couple of years or so, or either, and even beyond. Uh, on the flip side, are there anything um, are there any challenges and any factors on the horizon that you are specifically keeping an eye on as a perhaps a, a bit of a threat to to the industry or, or something for them to be mindful of? Anything that could sort of derail that that underlying trend. Yes, I think how what could stop the music, right? And everyone has to go find a chair and sit down for a bit. Oh, a couple of things. The first is, of course, things that the industry cannot control, i.e. an exogenous macro shock like COVID um, or, or something else that happens in another part of, of the asset market that causes investors to pull back and pull back sharply and valuations to fall in a dramatic way. That, that's the first thing, but that's an uncontrollable. The other thing that's a real risk is if returns meaningfully depreciate through this part of the cycle, right? We've seen record capital raised, record valuations being paid for private market assets. We all know how this works. It's going to eat into returns of some players. The question is by how much and will it be in an industry-wide event or not? And if it is, then you are going to see investors say, am I going to continue to put as much of my flows into as many managers or not, or am I going to consolidate into the few winners that I have, just like they would do in any other part of their portfolio. So I think this is caution to the wind for a lot of general partners today saying, these proliferation of platform extensions, that's fantastic. Um, all these new strategies you're pursuing, good for you. But you've got to make sure you do what you said on the tin when you sold that tin to the investor, i.e. you've got to put the returns up. Otherwise, you're going to be punished on the other side of it. And we've seen that happen time and time again in cycles. And the question is, how is that going to be a persistent problem or is that a problem of, of manager selection of, of alpha with certain players and no alpha with others, which is also quite normal in, in a healthy, vibrant market. The question is, is, is that going to be a pervasive problem or not? I think that there's enough strategy spe specialization and, and, and value add that happens amongst many, many of our top GPs such that that won't be a pervasive problem. There'll always be dollars and euros to be had for the top managers out there. The question and the challenge for managers is how do they keep themselves differentiated? And the best way to do that is to ensure they do what they said on the tin, as I said. Yeah, absolutely. And I guess for some of the uh, the more established players that have started that diversification or that platform play a, a bit early on. Obviously, we've we've seen that with um, some players that that went into uh, infrastructure a bit early on or, or, or private debt. Um, and, and I would I would imagine with 
funds are already LPs are already seeing the, uh, the the proof in the pudding, so to speak, because they might be on fund two or three for for these other strategies, and then clearly the, the returns are there. But I guess yeah, for for, for some that have been a, a bit later to that party, uh, there might be an element of wait and see until it becomes clearer who's actually been very good at this, as as you said, who can deliver the goods. That, that absolutely makes sense. Uh, and just to turn to the other uh, side, side of the coin, and, and I'm sure you'll have lots to say about that. As you said, it's, it's been a big focus for Sebil. Um, wanted to ask you about the secondaries market in, in general. Um, Raymond James, Sebil, uh, published their the secondaries market update recently, which is really interesting, uh, and forecasting a very, very strong 2021 uh, because the first half of this year has been very busy indeed. Um, can you tell us a bit more about what you expect for the secondary space in the coming month? Yes, indeed. I, we think that the secondaries market is just at the beginning of a stratospheric rise in its um, in its adoption amongst mid-market GPs. There are literally thousands of mid-market GPs in the US and Europe who are now beginning to do their first secondaries transactions via the GP-led market. And I, I am a big believer that what the market we're seeing today, which will cross 100 billion in transacted volume per our research, um, is going to be 250 billion in the next five years and heading to a trillion dollars of transacted volume within the decade or so. When you just look at the CAGA at which private market capital inflows are increasing, at some point in the life cycle, you're going to need an exit path for these companies or these funds. If you think about the average life, the average, Greg, of a private equity fund is 16.2 years. Mm given that they are advertised at 10-year vehicles with a couple of years of extension, you can see why this market exists. And the GP-led market gives the general partner the ability to control that exit rather than have their LPs buy and sell out of their funds, which is an incredibly powerful tool. It's highly accretive for the general partner to go down the path, and especially in the mid-market, where the natural buyers offer another private equity fund that comes into buy the business and hold it for four to five years and generate another two to three X on it. It's a great rationale for mid-market GPs to say, I'll hold on to this business. It's a great business. I know how to add value. I've often been the one to provide the management team. I've been the one to add the value over the last three to four years. Why should I sell it now? So we, you know, we are in a year where we've seen the establishment of GP-LEDs as half the secondaries market today. We're going to continue to see that play out and put for single asset and multi-asset continuation vehicles to really be the driver of the growth of secondaries advisory. Where is the challenge? Let me flip that on its head. What is the challenge for the industry? The challenge for the industry is not every deal from every GP deserves to be won. And we as advisors have become much more selective and over the years have learned that the hard way and being very, very careful to only bring deals to the market that we know can get done in the market um, and are being very, very ruthless almost in GP selection and in deal selection because the market is flooded with transactions as a result of, of the dynamic I described. And the buyer base, the secondaries investor buyer base is saying, I can't digest all this deal flow. So therefore, I have the ability to choose and I will choose the ones that look and feel best to me uh, in terms of quality, appetite, return profile. So there are uh, deals that are not getting done in the market today. And all advisors have learned the hard way what is getting done and what is not getting done. 
And so that deal selection becomes really important as we go through this crunch period of the next couple of years, as the industry goes through this intense growth, um, where only the best deals are going to have the appetite and the interest from the buyer base. The flow is there. Every GP is now thinking through whether a GP-led makes sense for them or not. Uh, it's a question of where whether they land well with the buyer base or not. Okay. And, and um, contrasting what's worked well with what perhaps hasn't, is there, what, what are the main stumbling blocks in, in general? Is, is it all about sort of uh, almost a perception of, of value left in the asset? Um, is it more the underlying kind of strength of the business rather than the way that, that you tell it? Is there any sort of main learnings that, that you've had in the past two or three years as to what works well and what doesn't? Yes, I, I think there's several learnings. The first is, good GPs and good assets. So if you think about high-low high in GP quality and high-low in asset quality, the GP-led market is for high highs, right? High-quality GPs and high-quality businesses. It really is meant for jewel-in-the-crown assets, especially if you're talking about single-asset continuation vehicles. It's not meant for mediocre or low-quality assets. So that's the, the first one. The same thing with GP quality. It's meant for the better GPs, not for zombie funds, which is where the GP-led market started four or five years ago. That market is gone, almost dried up now. The second thing that we see as a stumbling block is if you don't bring your existing limited partners and your LPAC along for the ride and give them the buy-in. We're proud at Sabil that for every transaction that we've gotten done, we have had unanimous support from LPACs. And that's been really important for us because if an LPAC or a member or an existing LP pushes back, you've got to go back to the drawing board and take their feedback into the deal construction. You can't force a deal down their throats. So you've got to make sure that your existing LPs come along for the ride, that they believe in the rationale for the transactions, that they will back the transaction for you and with you as the advisor and as the GP. That's one of the key stumbling blocks we see, that LPs are not happy with it and so the deal needs to get pulled. And we try to ensure that that does not happen on any of the transactions we take on. And thirdly, and finally, and just as importantly, is GP alignment. One of the big stumbling blocks in these deals is the GP is saying, oh, I'm going to take a lot of chips off the table and I'm going to put only the minimum in. Well, secondaries investors are just too clever for that. They're, they're too smart for that. They see right through that. And it's the first question when we bring a deal to the market is tell me about GP alignment. So they want to see tremendous skin in the game from the general partner that is reinvesting all proceeds or most of the proceeds that are coming out of the transaction by way of crystallized carry, for example, by way of their GP co-invest, for example, and oftentimes doing more, doing even more and leaning in heavily into these deals to create that alignment of interest with the new investors coming in. The secondary market today that is flooded with so many deals just doesn't have to spend time on a deal where they think that the GP is not in it with them fully, both dollars and cents, as well as in terms of their commitment, uh, in terms of resources of the key deal partners going forward. So those are the three stumbling blocks we see more often today. And we really try to head them off at the past when we're constructing these solutions with our GP clients. Yeah. And it's interesting because it's uh, just hearing that it's it's basically when when we started, you know, reporting on, on these and uh, uh, maybe the early parts of the, the, the 2010s, it was really what, uh, talking to LPs, they, they were really trying to wrap their head around these issues. And you could tell it was quite controversial. It was quite, there was pushback. Uh, and in turn as well, and that's something I wanted to ask you. In, in turn, I think that led 
GPs to be quite hesitant about all this because it was almost like, you know, an, not an admission of failure necessarily, but there, there was that element of, you know, why are they not just doing straight sales, straight M&A and, and, and realizing the portfolio that way? Why did, why did they need to turn to this, et cetera? Perhaps to the point that it kind of limited the uptake or GPs took a little while to warm up to it. Do you still, from the GP side, do you still get that sort of element of hesitancy around, around GP-leds or is anyone now on board and realizes, as you said, that uh, it's it's for it's for the if anything it highlights success and and quality. Yes, I think that there has been over the last twelve months since COVID a great democratization of GP led deal technology towards the mid market. But the mid market is huge, so we are still finding ourselves every week doing you know several calls a week of education GP education because GPs don't know how these deals work if they haven't done one before. It's new for them and they don't know how to apply these deals to their portfolio and to their fund solutions. And they need the advisor to help them craft the transaction that is going to resonate most appropriately with their existing investors and with new secondary investors as well. So I think that the answer is we're still in the early innings. There is this democratization happening as a macro thematic event in private equity in the asset class. Um, and it, it's, it, it's fallen upon a number of folks, including secondary market participants and advisors to do a number of that education. So when a secondary market investor is an LP in a fund, they will go ahead and do that education of the G, with the GP and for the GP, because uh, the GP will ask them, hey, how does this work? And when they speak to their advisor, their placement agent, or a secondary advisor, DeNovo, they will get a lot of that education happen for them, where they'll say, listen, talk us through the deal, talk us through the complications, the, the potential pushback, how do we mitigate those? How do we get this deal done? So you know, we, we are really starting to find that almost everyone has heard of it. They've all heard of a continuation vehicle. They've all heard of the GP-led secondaries market. An investor has mentioned it to them. Now they're saying, okay, tell me more. Take me one level deeper. If I had to do it, which companies would be relevant? Which funds would be relevant? How would I think through this? Um, that combination of, of uh, macro events has really forced their nose to it saying, figure this out. And maybe the answer is you're not right for it today. Maybe it's 18 to 24 months for now, for example, but at least now they know what's hap what's possible and what's not. And they can stay in touch with their favorite advisor as they work towards a potential event, whether it's an M&A exit event or a GP-led event. I think they're all understanding that single assets are a potential um, alternative to M&A. It's a question of is it applicable across the board or is it applicable only to certain assets? How do they think through that? That's what we're helping a number of them do. Yeah, and it's really interesting because it's not to the point that it's so mature that all of a sudden it's it's much harder, I guess, for advisors to position themselves. And it's it's there's a lot of opportunity, there's a lot of white space, as you said. It's it's now everyone's everyone's aware of it, but there's still that there, there is that need for a guiding hand through that, which is very exciting for you guys, I would imagine. Indeed. Um, that's that's amazing. I, I think that's all the time we have for uh, today, Sinena. But it's so so interesting. Lovely, lovely to uh, to talk to you as always. Um, and thank you very much for for coming on the podcast. Thank you for having me, Greg. It was a pleasure. And thank you all, of course, for listening to this week's episode. Uh, if you like the podcast, don't forget to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcast from. See you on the next one. Mm -hmm.